Welcome to Doorway to BIM. This is episode one, and I'm your host, Aaron Desmond. Welcome to our first ever podcast, The Doorway to BIM, brought to you by Asa Abloy Opening Studio. We'll be bringing you a monthly podcast that focuses on the ever-expanding topic of building information modeling and how you can improve your workflow and professional experience. In honor of Halloween, our topic today is all about the scary side of BIM and how you can overcome it with a few tricks. We hope you'll find this as much of a treat as we do. My guest for today is Derek Brokaw, Director of Design Technology with Baker Barrios, and David Sally, BIM Manager for Baker Barrios. Also joining me is Jeff Renlisbacher, Asa Abloy Opening Studio Consultant. Thanks so much for joining our podcast today. Let's get started. Yes, thank you for inviting us, Aaron. Jeff, we appreciate that. Great, thanks. So can you guys tell me a little bit about your firm and your background? So this is Derek Brokaw speaking. Um, I've been with Baker Barrios now for almost a year. Uh, we are located in downtown Orlando, and we also have an office in Tampa, and we're an ever-expanding uh, business, so we're growing rapidly. But right now, um, the major portions of our work are located in architecture and interior design. For architecture, we do a lot of uh, high-rise, mid-rise buildings. Um, we do several other types of work. Um, we don't just specialize in that, but uh, amphitheaters, um, David? You jump in here. Uh, performing arts theaters, uh, sports arenas, uh, along with um, uh, collaborating on airport projects, things like that, industrial. Yes. Um, so we've been around since the early 80s. Um, and we got into BIM some, how long has it been, David? 2008. 2008 here at Baker Barrios. I've been in it a little bit longer myself, but here at Baker Barrios, um, they've been pushing the envelope since then. And uh, we're really looking forward to the future and being able to take it to the next level um, and really get into the promise and the utopia of the idea of BIM and the building information modeling and not just construction documents and, and trying to get construction documents out, but actually have a model that uh, portrays an actual building and how it's built in such a way that you can do early coordination and actually reap the benefits of figuring things out and achieving no RFIs and stuff like that. Um, all those grandiose ideas is what we're, we're striving for. We're also working diligently in um, some other areas of technology and design technology, such as uh, 3D printing. We're experimenting with that heavily. Uh, virtual reality. We're also looking into some machine learning and artificial intelligence applications and how all that can affect um, our business. So that's a little bit about Baker Barrios. Um, what else did you want to talk about? Well, it's a spooky world out there, and so when you think about all the things that could go wrong in a project, what are some of the things that uh, send a little shiver down your spine? A lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would say the ones that, that, that are commonly the things that scare me a lot are when we're um, up against a wall on a deadline, and you got a major project. Um, in our world, we get into projects that are fairly large and have... Uh, sheets into the magnitude of the hundreds, you know, several hundred sheets. And then uh, when you experience problems on projects with, you know, 
10 to 15 people and numbers of links, you know, things just multiply very quickly. So when you have uh, crashes or errors or corrupt files, things go haywire really quick. Um, one of the things that we do to try to avoid some of those things, but they are very spooky, uh, is to make sure that um, a lot of people miss it when you open up a Revit file, if we're talking about Revit, and when they go to open it, there's a button off to the side that most people just overlook completely, and it's called Audit. And one of the things that reason a lot of people don't use it is, is when they have touched it and said audit, because it sounds like a good idea, right? You want to audit it, make sure it it's good like and clean. It sounds yeah. like a good idea. But then when you when you click on it, it throws up a dialog box at you that says, "Hey, this is going to take longer." And I think that scares a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But in reality, the additional time that it takes to audit the file is probably in the milliseconds, and I would bet that you never see anything over several seconds at worst. And we're talking maybe a a 500 megabyte uh, Revit model. So I mean, in the on the typical range of your 300 megabyte files, 200 megabyte files. I mean, we're seeing times for the audit adding additional time of maybe a half a second, a full second. It's not a big worry, and I think that it's a big deal for people throughout the project and its entire lifespan to, you know, click on that button and make sure that they're auditing the files daily. So it keeps the headers of the file and the the, the back end of the file. Uh, nice and tidy and clean mm -hmm. through the duration and it's just one more little step that you can do to make sure that your files and their integrity is good so that you don't have these issues in the end. Um, one of the other things is, is another commonly or seemingly hidden uh, feature of um, Revit is the uh, error logs. Why don't you talk about that one David? You've recently had some stuff with that. Alright so a lot of problems uh, occur when you have a tremendous amount of errors uh, associated in your project. Uh, errors can range from room separation lines overlapping with walls or your stairs not meeting the correct height or things just not cleaning up well. Uh, there's a way in Revit to check all those errors and just go to the Manage tab under Inquiry and there's a little error check button. And you select that thing and it'll give you all the errors in the project. What you would normally do is go ahead and print that out or save a copy of it to your desktop, uh, review it and tackle the easiest uh, errors first and get those things cleaned up. You wanna clean up as many as possible. Um, the fewer the errors, uh, the quicker the file will be. Revit looks at those errors and analyzes all those errors pretty much every time you change a view. So the the fewer errors you have, uh, the quicker your project to be. Mm -hmm. How often do you recommend that they look at this log? You should keep the error log clear of errors at all times. <laughs> but unfortunately, I think a lot of users uh, have never even experienced or even know that the button exists. Yeah. And you know that's an unfortunate thing. So if I, if I could promote anything to to users out there is is to become aware of it. One, open it up and, and take your first look at it if you've never looked at it. It can be a bit daunting as it can get into the hundreds, maybe even the thousands of errors. And uh, the trick really is is that from the beginning of a project, you really want to keep an eye on it and try to tackle those things. There's some things you just can't fix, yeah. and, and you know those are always going to be there. But you know it's always a good idea to do that. Um, one of the other things that I would say um, to prevent the spooky is 
So if you have a corrupt file or things go sideways, you know, you got all these users that are working on it. All too often have I seen where I've gone into a project and when I went to go get a backup of the thing from a local user or the local files, I find out that when I open up the log to look at all the ones that we could restore, that there's only a single or maybe two or three files that are available to be restored. And what happens is, is that every time somebody saves the central, they create a so-called backup, if you will. So if I save the central every five minutes and I only have three backups, guess what? I only have 15 or 20 minutes worth of the, the file to go back and restore from. Well, if I had this error since this morning or yesterday, I now have no backup files to go back to. I'm kind of in trouble here. So one of the things that we do here at Baker Barros that I push heavily is that when we start up a Revit file, Revit project specifically, um, and I don't care for what, just as a matter of you know making it rhythmic, um, we have a rule that there is no Revit project that has less than 200 backups for a Revit project. Now, we also have a rule in addition to that that says that for every person that will ever be on the project at one time, that maximum number of users, there should be 100 backups for each user on the project. So let's say that in crunch time, you know, you typically have three, four architects working on your model or whatever through the duration of the project. But then right there at the end of the project, you know, you got to get it out the door and you get some extra help in there and you got five people on the project. Well, what that would mean is, is you should have 500 backups listed in the uh, file so that there's 500 backups there you need to go back and the deal is is that you have backups um, probably from your IT staff that are doing their manual larger backups you have the central file has the 500 backups and then you have 500 backups at every local user so there's a lot of redundancy in that but people are always like 500 that sounds like so much oh no well, the backup files are really in the kilobytes, and they're tiny. <laughs> I mean, it's really it's a text, a text um, file that contains some stuff. It really doesn't take up much information and space on a, on a hard drive. So I highly recommend that you do it. It's worth every penny to have those backups available um, as frequently as possible. So definitely increase your number of backups when you guys save off a project, or if you're in the middle of a project right now and you're hearing this and you and you want to make sure that your backups are set. One of the great things that you can do is you can do a save as of your project, and it's actually a two-fold benefit. When you do the save as, of course, you'll have that option to go in and, mag and change the maximum backups to something higher than what you have. I would recommend 200 or higher. And you also, every time that you save the file as, you'll notice that your file size drops, and it actually goes back and it configures the file again and cleans up some stuff. So there's actually that added benefit there. The other thing we like to do uh, to prepare for the end of the projects, you know, we have the printing that comes up. We, we like to create checklists just to make sure that we have everything uh, put together before the printing comes. Uh, so one of the first things we check for is to make sure all the Revit links that need to be on are turned on. We also make sure that all the work sets associated with it um, that should be on are, are, are on and the ones that should be off are turned off. Um, we also want to make sure that all the, the sheets have the correct phasing and design options that are not a part of the, the final design should be erased and, and of course, 
you need to have the, the current one. And then we want to make sure that everyone is synced before the person doing the printing syncs his file. And once everyone else is synced, then the person printing the files can sync their file. Yeah, and, and one of the things I'll add here to that, David, is, is that, you know, printing, you know, and everybody here is not the same with listening to this podcast, but for those that have larger pro projects, you know, into the hundreds of sheets, printing becomes a real, it's an obstacle, um, and it's one that can take a lot of time, you know, I mean, hours and hours of printing time, you know, even with the dedicated um, computers that are really good, you know, That's you great. can still spend a lot of time in printing. Um, and all too often do I see the issue where a team is up against that and somebody will go to print, you know, and they'll set it up so that before they go home, it'll start printing. And that way, then the next morning when they come in, it'll all be printed. But they find that the next morning when they come in, oh, there was an error, the, it crashed or something went wrong with the computer. One of the things that you can simply do to just hedge against that is, is to have several team members, all, maybe I would say probably three, there's good redundancy in about three, is to have three people all try to print that same night. And that way, if one computer goes down, you still have two others that might have succeeded. And that way, you're really not suffering a setback. You know, and that's a real simple thing to do. It doesn't cost anybody any extra money or time or energy or effort. So have multiple people try to print those sets so that if something goes down, you can do that. Also, um, you could have where you have more people during the day, perhaps, break the printing up into several pieces, you know, print sheets eight or one through 30, and then the next person 30 through 60, or whatever the case might be. And you might be able to bang them out a whole lot quicker and then not suffer the have to wait and see thing where you do it all night long. David, you got any thoughts on that? I'm sure you've experienced that a few times. Huh? Well, no, I think that's a great idea, because uh, I, I have run into problems where you print it and you wait overnight, come back in the morning, and you have an error, then you have to restart the printing, and now you're late. So I think the entire team printing, or three members from the team printing overnight, I think that would be an excellent idea. What other questions do you have for us, Aaron? <laughs> I think you guys covered a lot of great things. Um, you know, certainly a lot of tips and, and suggestions are in here. Um, well, we know that people in the industry have nightmares about door scheduling. Why do you think this oh. is? <laughs> oh, this is too easy. Um, so one of the things that happens with door schedules, the infamous door schedule is, is here we are, we're up against the end of the project, everybody thinks they're done, and, and somebody inevitably comes back when they're doing their QC, and then they go, all my doors aren't showing up in the door schedule, or this parameter's not showing up, I can't get an accurate count. Well, what typically happens is, and David, please jump in here, is People will go out on a project, team members, and they'll go download something from a Revit City or from this website or from Seek or this or that. And that's all fine and good, you know, or you go to a manufacturer's website, you got two or three manufacturers, you go to download their stuff. But for every manufacturer, for every different door built by somebody else, they all have parameters inside of them, and that's what we schedule. And if those parameters aren't named the same, categorized the same, and have consistent information in a way that they deal with them, when you go to create a schedule, that schedule wants to look at a particular parameter. Let's call it door hardware, right? When I go to look for that door hardware and the doors, and on one family of doors, it says uh, hardware. The other one has some abbreviation, HDW or something. Or door hardware. <laughs> or, yeah, you know, all these different combinations. None of it's going to schedule right because you can't, they're, they're all not going to fall out appropriately. So 
that becomes a really big issue. And then here we are at the end of the project, and sometimes on these larger projects, you cut doors into the – we just recently had a project with like 6,000 doors on it. Yeah, I mean, building. It, it, it really, really kills us when we have to go back in there and find stuff when you're dealing with that many doors. It is a total nightmare. Um, one of the things that we have experienced is, uh, in the last few years is, is with you guys, we've actually found some benefit to the idea that, you know, if you get in with Asa Avoy and you guys work together with us like we typically do, and I'd recommend this for anybody out there, you know, these guys, they, they do a stellar job at helping track all those kind of things and outfitting your, your doors, not just with the hardware, and, and they're not there just to sell you something. They're actually there to help you walk through this process of getting your model correct. Um, they actually have some plugins and some tools for Revit that will help you analyze your project and find all your doors, and then not only find them, but categorize them, um, you know, and it goes through that whole process, and then they can help build the schedule for you. Without or, the correct parameters. Yes, and it all syncs up. It is a wonderful thing. <laughs> how is your team set up, and how do you manage that? So that's a, that's a difficult one. Um, and I'm sure that we're not the only people that experience this, but you know, typically teams teams are a a formation of how their studios are set up, and everybody has a little bit of a different management style and a different style of working. Um, and I'm not going to say that there's any one right way or wrong way. You know, I've seen several great things. Um, what I can talk to is is what I've experienced to be a a really good way of working. And there is a methodology in programming that I will lean on for this conversation, and it's called Agile. Um, some of you may have heard the terminology come from uh, uh, Lean, or the Lean Movement, which came out of Japan some years ago in the Toyota production system. But uh, programming really takes that on, and it's commonly referred to as the Agile methodology. You can look up the Agile Manifesto. And out of that was born another way of working, and it's called Scrum. And with Scrum, you have the ability to take all the tasks that are in a given project and you can pull plan them and you have this great to-do list basically is what you have and then you, you break up all your work and you can do this manually or through some tools like Trello digitally um, but more simply you can just do it with sticky notes so you have a, a to-do list and each task is on a sticky note or if you're in Trello it's a card and you have three lists you have to do in progress and done and, and what this does for you is it allows the entire team to visually manage where they're at and what tasks they're on. Because all too frequently, and maybe David, you can jump in here, you get into a new project and you're going and you're tackling this and you get a question or you get a phone call and an interruption and, and you had, you know, it's just like a boxing match. You, yeah, you get into the fight and as soon as the first punch is thrown, the plan goes out the door. And, yeah, you end up working on something, get pulled away, and then you'd never go back to the, the item that you were working on. Uh, but Trello helps with that because you can see exactly what you have on your plate at all times. Yeah, and, and the neat thing is, so when you take on a task, you move it over to that to-do, to do, from the to-do column into the in-progress column. And the whole team now knows that somebody's working on that, and they know who's working on it because you put your name on there. Um, so you start working that, and then when you're done with it, you move it from there into the done pile. And you can really start to see your progress. But the real mastery comes, you know, at the end of a project, especially a large one, Brooks Law. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with Brooks Law, Brooks Law is the idea that at the end of a project, the inverse is true. The more people I add, the slower I will go. Yet everybody at the end of a project always throws more bodies at it to make it go out the door faster. And inevitably, it doesn't work. And it only creates more Band-Aids and headaches and problems just to get it out the door. 
Um, Fred Brooks did that back in 1975. There was a book called The Mythical Man Hour or Mythical Man Month. Uh, if you guys ever want to check that out, um, is a pretty good look at how things are going. It's neat too, also, to see how things have progressed since you know uh, since '75 to now, but with tools like Scrum and stuff like that. So, when it comes to teams, I recommend Scrum. It's one of the things that we use, even with the BIM execution plan. We're starting to get into the idea of utilizing Scrum and um, Kanban boards, is what they're called. In Japanese, Kanban literally translates to billboard. Thus, again, going back to the idea of visual management. And um, just having the team be able to see all the, the things that have to be done so that nothing gets left behind, like doors. You know, that's the to-do list on the thing. You know, somebody grabs that to-do list and puts it in progress, and then they abandon it. It's really easy for the rest of the team to see that it either was abandoned because, hey, man, that thing's been up there for, for days. What's going on with that? You know, and then, then it gets dealt with rather than just falling off to the wayside and things can get taken care of. So that's one of the ways that we try to handle teams here. <clears throat> That's great. That's definitely something that I know that a lot of software development companies use this type of methodology. So it's great to see that kind of transition into other industries as well. Um, what is like the kiss of death on a project for you? <laughs> oh, um, the kiss of death. I think of all kind of things that come to mind. So one of the kisses of death is, is that you got a bunch of people on a project that's really large. You got computers and hardware that, uh, they could always be better, right? Everybody always wants a faster computer. And you get the spinning wheel of death, which is like every time I go to click on something, it's trying to, to sync or save the central or something, right? And I get that little blue wheel that's spinning, and you're like, dude, I can't do anything. <laughs> One of the things is that in Revit, uh, we all work in, in multi-shared files, right? Um, and with that comes some nuances. So Revit is constantly... When you're in the central, the central file is always communicating out with all of the local files. And that's how when somebody touches something that they know that it was checked out because that actually is pinged back up to the central file and then all of the local files are pinging that central file. And then now we would know like David, David has now touched that door. And now I get a message when I go to grab the door that David's got it. Even though I haven't synced the central, but that pulse, that, that heartbeat that's constantly going out and checking for things is checking things just like that. Um, and that happens every five seconds by default. In your Revit, in, in the options in the big top left-hand, or in the top left-hand corner in the big blue R, and you go to your options under the general tab, you'll see that there's um, work sharing update frequency. And by default, out of the, from the factory, you know, it's set to every five seconds, and, and it's, a, it's a sliding bar that you can move that on. Most people have never even adjusted that. Uh, but you can move it from more frequent to less frequent and move it out to about 60 seconds. And if you really think about it, there's projects in their file size large enough that it takes more than five seconds to get the information out and back in some cases. And then just as soon as it finished it, it tries it again to ping again. And then that's where you get these things where I can't do anything because the thing keeps spinning, the spinning wheel of death, as we call it. If you move that out to every 60 seconds, several things are going to happen. For starters, no more spinning wheel of death. You know, it's not going to interrupt you nearly as much as it typically does. You're going to decrease the overall bandwidth in your entire office. Because if you have all the users in your office every five seconds pinging files, that is a whole lot of network traffic. You can reduce that by an order of magnitude that's, that's very high if you go from five seconds to, to 60 seconds. One thing I will caution against is, is people typically, when they get in there, it's a sliding bar. So if they pull that sliding bar too far to the left, 
it has a manual mode. And if you get all the way out to the left, it'll go into manual, which means it doesn't check unless somebody sinks the central, and that can be a little bit dangerous. So I would go no more than the 60 seconds, but that's that's a big one for the kiss of death. What do you got, David? Well, for me, uh, the kiss of death is whenever anyone says that, hey, we'll just do this for now, and we'll update it later uh, <laughs> to the correct format. Band-Aid. The, the problem is it's a Band-Aid, and no one ever gets back to that Band-Aid. And at the end, you'll see it, but it causes so much trouble that it's difficult to manage the project. So I, I just say, instead of doing things for now, go ahead and do it right the first time and put it away. Keep on moving. I had a mentor one time tell me about that. He said, uh, if you don't have the time to do it right now, how are you ever going to find the time to do it a second time? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I definitely hear you on that one. That's one of my biggest problems. I, that... But another um, kiss of death that, I, that I've discovered several times that I wish I never had is, is I have a user call me over, and then I get over there, and they're like, I can't dimension these walls. The, the strings just aren't working. And they're like, why is that not working? I'm sitting there, I'm baffled, like, what's going on, you know? And I get in there, and I start to put on dimensions. And then, they, then you get to the point where you have the aha moment that, oh, my gosh, these walls are not parallel and perpendicular to one another. Like, oh, boy. I've definitely seen that before. And, and that is a major debacle. And, it, you know, everything typically runs in this cycle where I take the existing wall and I'll copy that over rather than draw a new one. Well, if I copied that wall, well, now the next one's wrong. And if I base a dimension for some other fixture or element off of that wall, and it's actually different at the top and the bottom of the wall because it's at an angle. It just doesn't end, and then it just it infects the entire file. And here you are late in the game, and you got a whole model that's just not right. And those are always things. So I highly recommend that folks follow a couple simple rules with that. And one of those is, is to um, early on in the project make sure that you use the two most hierarchical things inside of Revit, and that is grid lines and levels. They, I don't know that there's anything else inside of Revit that outranks those things as far as hosting. I don't think there is. So if, if you get your grid lines in, you know, dimension them as soon as they're in. And after you dimension them, change your tolerancing down to 1256 of an inch. Here we run at 1256 of an inch. People gasp all the time. Oh my gosh, 1256 of an inch. I can't see all those fractions. And I like to tell them all the time, guess what? If you don't draw anything to 1256 of an inch, you won't have any dimension to display 1256 of an inch. And if you have those, your tolerances set low, when, whenever you put a dimension on something, it's really easy to see that it's wrong. And you can fix it right away rather than get to the end of the project and then find that you have all these errors. And then so common where people will go in and they'll change the tolerancing of the dimensions to be much higher and when you do that to, to hide the mistakes it's not good because then the opposite becomes true so if I have a building that's several 600 feet long and I have a string that goes from one side to the other and I've moved everything up to a quarter inch tolerance and I'm off an eighth inch at each one times 20 dimensions my whole building's in trouble and you know then we wind up in court with issues like that nobody really wants that yeah, so those are some of the thoughts that come to mind, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's I had, great. I had a quick, com I had a quick comment, Aaron, just uh, before we we leave that, because you know I get a visit with several architects and see um, how they do things, and to the doing it right the first time, I think the further we get into collaborating on the models, um, the cleaner that's going to be. I think that. 
uh, with some of these tools that allows uh, consultants and, and different individuals to access the information that are in the models, there's a bit of embarrassment that happens, right? So we, we see when, when projects get analyzed, uh, we can see that the, the family that, that's in the model isn't necessarily what's wanted. They've, they've made changes to the door schedule to reflect uh, what they actually would like. And, uh, you know, w with BIM and uh, getting to that point where we can produce something that can be extracted at the end, I think it's even more critical that the, the models are accurate. So uh, I just wanted to echo uh, David's thoughts on that because I see well, that all the I time. I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and all too commonly, you know, most of us don't achieve the achieve BIM. You know, we commonly use Revit for construction documents. We're not doing BIM. Right. You know, right. just because you're in Revit don't, does not mean you're doing BIM. You know, and and unfortunately, um, a lot of models out there, the the primary focus is is to get uh, construction documents plans out for the review process at the city, you know, and, and technology is coming along rather quickly here in the last several years, we've all seen the advent of several jurisdictions going to digital submissions with PDFs and removing paper. And then, you know, there's even been a few rogue ones out there that have accepted BIM models. And, you know, we've got other countries that are actively working on that and software that does some of the checking. And as we see some of these generational gaps and walls fall down, a lot of that's going to change. And, and, it's going to require, it's going to be necessary. You won't be able to operate in any other way than to have a model that is accurate and representative of what you're about to build. That's actually a great point that you have there, you know, as, as far as BIM goes, you know, what's the scariest question that you've ever had in regards to the process? You say a lot of people haven't really, just because they're in Revit doesn't mean they're actually, you know, following the BIM process. You know, how do you answer those questions? Long conversations over se several years. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> the unfortunate truth that I've begun to understand over the many years that I've been doing this is, is that change is slow, um, software updates are fast, and just because you got a software update or a new software doesn't mean that change has happened. Um, forever, I mean, several people are using Revit like AutoCAD. You know, I mean, they're, they're still looking for layers and stuff like that and, and, and doing things the way that they always have and not breaking those paradigms down. Um, and then, you know, Jeff brought up the idea of these tools that make Revit models more accessible, like collaboration for Revit and tools, tools like that. You know, and, and I'll give you a, a great instance of how the divergence is going when we look at collaboration for Revit, where now one of the reasons that we've always had separate models for so many folks is, is that we're in separate offices and we need to work independently of another. But now with tools like this where we're all on a common server, we no longer have to do that. We could begin to live out that utopia of let's work all in the same model, you know, let, let's stop copying and monitoring and, and doing these other things that we do that were just necessary management headaches to accomplish having a model in our own office. Well, if we don't have that burden, why do we continue to perpetuate those problems and issues and change the way that we actually do things and work more like a team and, you know, stuff like that? So I think I digressed there a little bit, Aaron. I think I went off on a tangent on you. I apologize. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's what we're, we're, uh, we're aiming for. We want those tangents, right? I just wanted to know, do you have a special Revit trick-or-treat that you would like to share? David? Well, uh, for me... 
the special Revit trick-or-treat things I like to refer back to whenever anyone talks to me about anything uh, related to how to keep everything put together is uh, first, I, I place my grids and my levels on the design options so that they're not accidentally modified by anyone in the project. A lot of times when working in the project, uh, you'll get grid lines that end up out of control, they'll end up off the edge of your sheet, or if you're sharing your model with someone else, they'll pretty much infect their model with grid lines that extend far beyond anything you want to see. So I, I place them in a, in a design option, and I keep that design option pretty much grayed out, so there's no way anyone can go in and modify that uh, by accident. Not by accident. It's very intentional. Then you can be hunted down. <laughs> uh, another thing is, uh, with you know, now that we have C4R, we can collaborate in the same workspace. But we would like to see people collaborate more within the same model. I'm not sure how or if anyone would want to do it, but I believe that um, it'll make the process a lot easier if you have the structural guys in one model along with the architecture, along with all the other people. And, and then it's only one model, one drawing, and you don't have to worry about managing multiple different models. Um, also, uh, another thing is we here at Baker Barrios have started using uh, an add-on called Dynamo. And, and Dynamo automates a lot of things for us, especially things dealing with the data. We can, you know, manage the model using Dynamo. We can uh, remove levels or clean up models when it comes to model maintenance. So we can get rid of views, schedules that we don't need, all the stuff at the end of the project or right before printing to, to speed the project up a little bit. Dynamo can automatically uh, clean clean up everything for you. I, I believe that Dynamo is a required skill moving forward. It, it's not even up for debate. I mean, if you, I need my new hires to know how, at least what it is, how to operate it or run a script that's already been created. Because um, a lot of the stuff that we find that we have issues with, you know, we'll turn around and create a Dynamo script to solve it, and then we intend to have that out there for others to turn around and use kind of like a button. Um, but it's a little bit external at the moment, and you can go in and utilize that to solve these repetitive issues. I mean, one of the success stories that we had her here early on at Baker Barrios was we had gathered up a whole bunch of details, I think some 600 details from other projects, and we had intended to begin to clean them up and look at them and review them to see if they needed to be added to the library. Well, one of the things that we began to discover was is there were several uh, textiles amongst all of them and uppercase and lowercase and all this that and the other thing and when you got 600 details and we have a, a staff member looking to have to do all that if you have to touch all the text in there you're looking at weeks worth of work and that that's a deal killer right there but what i can tell you is is that right out of the gates we took a brand for those that are scared of it or have never touched it this this should speak to you uh, we had a brand new user to Dynamo. I had him download it, install it, fire it up. I sat behind him and in 15 minutes with a little bit of instruction, was able to help them build a script that went through all the, the text in the entire file, move everything to uppercase text, <clears throat> and move it all to a single uh, text file. And when it ran, you know, it'll take all the 15 seconds, but it's the work that you put into to write the script to do that. 
And the neat thing is it's kind of like Lego blocks. It's really easy to plug and play these pieces rather than have to learn a programming language or syntax. So it's really simple. And, you know, that really helped that individual. And I can't tell you the number of times that we've probably used it on much smaller scales throughout on little errors here and there. So Dynamo is definitely a, a big one. One of my nuggets that I'll share for the trick-or-treat here is, is to stop hoarding things. <laughs> Just delete them. I mean, people hold on to stuff to to the end, I mean, with a death grip. If you have a view that you were using for constructability or just building stuff, delete the thing away. You don't need to hold on to it. It can be recreated later. Just don't leave stuff behind because you think it might need to be used later. I mean, there's definitely stuff that has to be kept. If you can't live without it, keep it. But for every other purpose, get rid of it. One of the things that I ask folks to do is, is to take their views that they create, and on the end of them, I don't care what the view was for or whatever, if it's not going on a sheet, is to add space dash space and then their username to the end. That way, when I go in to do a purge of the health check, I can see whose views they are, and if I have a question about whether it's relevant or not, I can come and ask. It, maybe I don't. Typically, I don't. I just go in there and delete them. And again, by the way, I use a Dynamo routine that goes in and removes all views that aren't on sheets, and that'll drop your file size uh, drastically. But um, that's what I have for your uh, trick-or-treat session right there. That's great. You guys have done such a fantastic job. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Um, is there anything else that you would want to leave uh, behind for your listeners? Keep pushing. You know, I mean, we're talking about some rudimentary things here, but uh, BIM has not seen its best days and, and just keep moving the ball forward. Yes, absolutely. Keep pushing the ball forward. Before we come to a gut-wrenching stop and shut the door on this podcast, do you have a tip, trick, or idea that you want to share? Email openingstudio at asabloy.com. Will you be at Autodesk University in Las Vegas? Make sure to look for us there. If not, we'll see you at the next episode, live from Autodesk University. To learn more about Asa Abloy Opening Studio, visit www.openingstudio.com.